0: Praise God. Praise God. I want to share with you for a few moments and you can remain seated today. and Normally we stand for the word, but I want to share with you as we look at this, this, um, this, this series that we're doing called exiles uh, studies in first Peter. Uh, today, we want to talk from this thought, a call to reverent living, a call to reverent living in first Peter chapter one. Verses 17 through 21. And if you have your Bibles, turn them on or, or uh, uh, open them up. And we're going to read to you from the English Standard Version of the Scripture. And uh, the Word of God says this to us. And if you call on Him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's needs, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time Of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. And the word of the Lord is blessed. As we celebrate these contributions made by black Americans to this great country of ours, it's now important for us to examine the words of Peter and how they might impact the manner in which we live. And that impact is wrapped in the context that the gospel is for all people. There is no person, no ethnic group, no class or social status that is above and beyond the reach of the gospel. The gospel is the great equalizer. The gospel helps the rich man to know that he can't buy his way into heaven. The gospel helps the one to know that lives in poverty, that that their poverty is not what's important, that what's more important is having a poverty of spirit. The gospel helps the one who is intellectual to understand that there is a God who is omniscient and knows all things. The gospel helps the one that is academically challenged to know that God is able to even give you information that you didn't have before. The gospel is the great equalizer. Why is the gospel the great equalizer? Where Peter has, we've talked about this over previous weeks. uh, The gospel is the great equalizer because every one of us has a great need. And that needs the same, no matter who you are or where you come from or what you've been doing or where you've, who your family is or what your bloodlines are, no matter what. All of us have this same great need, and that is that we were born in sin and shaped in iniquity, that we are all sinners. We are all sinners in need of a savior. And the gospel reminds us on a daily basis that what we do and who we are in Christ was not of our own doing. And that even the maintenance of this relationship with God is not of our own doing. Because left to our own devices, we would just as soon go right back into sin. And I know you might not want to admit that today because all of us have been saved a while and we think, well, I'm somebody now. <laughs> but without Christ and the presence of his spirit in us that made possible by this believing the gospel, without that, we'd go right back to sin. I may have used this illustration before, but my grandmother used to tell me all the time, Brenda, she'd say, say, hey, you know what? You can put a tuxedo on a pig and first mud puddle you see will jump right back in. it." Somebody heard that before, right? And I thought about that for years and years in my life, Uh, even after she passed on and went to be with the Lord. Now, the grandma used to tell me all the time that that a, a pig, if you put a tuxedo on, would jump right back in the mud puddle. And that bothered me because I thought of my faith as God just changing my clothes. I went from rags to riches. But that's not just what God did. He didn't just change this outward appearance. As a matter of fact, he probably didn't do a whole lot to it at all. But what he did was he changed my heart and I had to rethink what grandma said because yes, you can put a tuxedo on a pig and he'll go right back to the first mud puddle. But if by chance you can convince that pig that he's not a pig, he'll walk past the mud puddle and wear that tux proudly. So what does the gospel do for us? Our nature is changed. We receive this new nature in Jesus Christ. And we're now convinced and being convinced every day by the brand new mercies of God. We're being convinced that we're not pigs look at somebody say I'm not a pig I don't know what you I don't know about you but I'm not a pig I'm not I'm not I may look like one I may oink like one every now and then but don't get don't, don't get it twisted I'm not a pig I'm I'm not made to wallow in the mud because of Christ and the gospel I'm made to walk past the mud and sin and, and that does so easily beset my life God doesn't want me to live there and he changed my nature with the gospel. So Peter is sharing that with us and telling us about this great gospel. And in this text, Peter shares two important ideas in verse 17 that I wanna just, that set the tone for this entire text here through the 21st verse. These two ideas in, in, in verse 17 Shape the culture of our discussion today. And they are this. First, God is an impartial judge before whom we all must stand. God is an impartial judge. Now think about those words in verse 17, that God who judges impartially, he judges without any partiality. In other words, God is the most just person or or being that ever existed in the universe that's eternal. And And, you know, just when we think you talk about justice and fairness and those things, God is the epitome of all of those things. God is just. Life is unfair, but God is fair. Get that. So God is an impartial judge. What does that mean? That God is no respecter of person. Our personhood doesn't influence God's decision about our life. Everything that makes you, you, as beautiful as you are, no matter how much time you spend in the mirror, you won't impress God. Now, Nancy will impress Gene. she has been impressed for thirty years. <laughs> amen. Thirty-five. That's right. Thirty-five years. Been impressed. Come on. That's yeah. That's that's worthy of an amen, isn't it? I'm hopeful to impress my wife for thirty-five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> But if but here you know think about that. No matter what you do to try to impress God, you can't because he's an impartial judge. How many times have you been praying? You've been telling God about what somebody's doing to you and how hard your life is and what they how they mistreating you and everything like that. And you get to the end of that prayer, and on your heart falls this idea, but you know what? You're a sinner and you need to repent. There's some things you did. What is God doing there? He's simply reminding us that he is an impartial judge. God will never judge you on how people treat you. But he will judge you on how you treat people. And that took me a while to get that in my own life because I was always, I was one of those prayers that'd be like, get them, God. <laughs> they treat me bad, God. Come on, you know, it's a, this is not fair. And God says, I, I, didn't, I didn't save you so that you could use me as leverage to get what you want in life. I saved you because of my own glory. That's why I saved you. And so, and so instead of getting that leverage against other people, I understood that God was remaking me and molding me and shaping me in such a way that he could use me as a blessing to others rather than worried about how others are treating me. See, some of us got, somebody just got delivered right there. You've you've been worried too much about how people are treating you and God hasn't been able to use you in ministry because every time your feelings get hurt, you go sit down. Mmm. Mmm. Touch somebody and say he in my business. I just, (laughs) get out of my business, pastor. And so, and so you, you know, we, we get upset and go sit down and don't want to participate and not coming back to church and I'm, a, I'm leaving, I'm, a, I'm going to another church. And you're bounced around to five or six churches and all that, all because you got a little attitude problem. And God said, no matter what church you go to, there you are. <laughs> and until you deal with you. This is going to be a problem. So so God is an impartial judge before whom we all must stand. So Peter tells us that in this text. The second thing in verse 17 that really jumps out at us is that those who know him as father should live as exiles in this thing called reverent fear. A reverent fear. Now, you got to understand the context of this because the Greek word there for fear is phobos. And phobos is a word in which we get the word phobia from. And so we see all these phobias like arachnophobia. Who knows what that is? Fear of spiders, right? Huh? Agoraphobia. What's that? I think that's a fear of like going outside and being in crowds. And so you have all these phobias that are out there and, and the word phobos is there. But in context, this does not mean a terrified relationship or a terrified attitude towards God. God doesn't want you terrified of him, but he wants you. It's like, it's like a driver. I don't drive in terror, but I drive with a healthy fear that other drivers might not be paying attention. They call it defensive driving, right? You're always looking. You don't want an accident to happen, but you're aware that one could. So you don't live in this in this phobia that, oh, I can't get behind the wheel because I might get in an accident. No, you know that, that though it could happen, you're just aware of what's going on. So in this reverent fear of God, we're not terrified of God, but we know that God is a judge. And we know that reverent fear in this text means that we are to live knowing that God holds us accountable. Look at somebody and say accountable. accountable. There's a word that we don't like as believers. Accountability. Ever since we got saved, you know, we don't want any Accountability. Let me do what my own thing is. I don't want anybody to say anything to me about what I'm doing. So if I cuss somebody out, don't say anything to me because I got grace. (laughs) Amen. You know, if I treat my wife bad, you know, don't say anything to me, honey, because I got grace. Paul says this in Romans 6. He says, shall we continue in sin? that grace may abound? Because we have this great grace, does that mean that we keep on sinning? He says, God forbid, absolutely not. We don't sin because we have grace. We refrain from sinning because we have grace. Because we understand what it took to get that great grace wish it was two or three people in here agree with that so god holds us accountable this reverent fear is accountability though our sins be forgiven we have a calling to work for the kingdom so we live in this reverence of god now unfortunately there exists this ideal that because of the the blood of christ as i said some of us think we can omit righteous living in this world and that's not what God says, so these two notions shape the basis of Peter's message in this particular text to understand these concepts helps us understand why we should live in a reverent fear of God as exiles in this world. It is important to know that we have a calling to live in reverent fear, but it's equally important to know uh, why we are to do so. One thing I, I always say is that we are good as Christians telling people what they ought to do. But we don't tell them why or how to do it. We go up to a teenager whose hormones are raging, and we say, don't give in to your, to your sins, to your, to your flesh. And that teenager says, okay, I want to please you, but they know on the inside. Come on, somebody's ever been a teenager, just throw your hand up real fast. Don't let anybody... Yeah, you felt that before, haven't you? I'm, oh, no, no, I'm not going to do it. Yeah, yeah, you're in church, you made a problem. How many times have made that commitment? I'll never do it again. And what happens, what happens is that we've told that, that individual, that child, we've told them that you ought not do this, but we haven't shared with you why and how to refrain. I went to youth group all my life. And all these in youth group, they say, hey, don't do that. Don't look at that girl that way. And I'm like, well, you better put blindfold on me then because that child is fine. I'm just saying, you know, she fine as frog hair. I'm just saying, you know, just. <laughs> I better come in here with some Ray Charles glasses on or something because I'm in trouble. That's what I said in my mind. I, you can't be holy and say that stuff out loud. <laughs> they would have had me at the altar every Sunday. Just <laughs> oh, don't you act like I'm the only one. Come on. Shame on you, Pastor. Uh huh. Don't let me read your mail. I'm just saying. <laughs> so. So Peter again here in verse seventeen notes to us and he says to us, We're strangers. We're strangers in this world. And certainly we are to we are by virtue of the new birth. We're socially dislocated. We don't feel fit in this world by virtue of the new birth our value system is different we think differently we're not driven even by our cultural distinctions anymore because we are believers in christ we have this new value system and it makes us uncomfortable in this world if you're too comfortable in this world i want you to check your faith in god Our values are different, our hearts are changed, and our minds are renewed with the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. As believers, our discomfort with this world is a normative element in our lives. It ought to feel normal to be uncomfortable for a believer. You ought to be a little nervous if you get too comfortable. You ought to be a little nervous if your presence hadn't upset the apple cart at all this week. All week long on social media and at work, you haven't bothered anybody by your presence. Are you too comfortable in this world? People ought to to be like, there you go. Talking about Jesus again. But if nobody ever says that to you, who do you represent? What team are you playing for? I was a big Bulls fan in the 90s, and every time I used to tell my friends, man, they could give me a, a, a warm-up and a uniform, and I'd never have to get off the bench, just sit there, because I want to be on the team, just being on the team. Can you imagine having that Bulls warm-up on, and i get up and pull it off, and it's a Celtics jersey underneath? That's how God that's how some of God's team is. I'm just saying. Yeah, you know, we got this Holy Ghost uniform on this warm-up suit on, and we put it off and be like, devil. <laughs> Did I say that out loud? I'm sorry. <laughs> and so and so it ought to be normal for you to 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 have a discomfort. But it is important to mention. It is important to mention how social dislocation results from this connection to a holy God. Our vertical commitment results in a horizontal discomfort with the things of this world. It is for this reason that every believer, regardless of ethnic heritage, should never be comfortable with racism or any other sin. Never be comfortable wherever you see it. Never be comfortable because your comfort with sin makes it easy for people who hate. Now, so we live and we call to this living in this reverent fear this accountability this place of accountability in our lives now now in verses 18 through 21 and we're almost done here 18 through 21 Peter explains to us why exiles or strangers ought to live in this reverent fear of God and why we should do that he gives us three reasons to do so which all center upon Christ and the first reason is the high cost of our redemption the high cost of our Redemption. Look at this. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. What a mighty word contained in this verse. We can and should live in reverent fear of God, because our redemption did not come as a result of a price that we could pay. But on the contrary, our debt of sin was paid by the life of Jesus Christ. You know, It'll be somebody excited about that right now. See, we, we've gotten too comfortable as believers. We kind of think that we had something to do with paying that debt of sin. And I really, I really have challenged myself to remember on a daily basis what it cost for my redemption. What it cost for the redemption of the world. Now, look at this. We, we couldn't pay our debt and Paul puts it like this in Romans chapter five verses six through eight. He says, for while we were still weak and the King James version says, while we were yet sinners at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. In our weakness in the feebleness of our own humanity. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Look at somebody and say, that was me. Look at verse seven. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. People will hardly give their life for, for somebody that's good. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But verse 8 is, here it is. But God shows his love for us that in that while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. Oh, that the church would get this. Oh, that the church of Jesus Christ would understand this. How wonderful a church would it be when all God's children come together and understand that while I was in my sins, Jesus died for me. See, I didn't have to be at the cross. I didn't have to be there physically because I was there on his mind. I wish I had somebody here. When he was dying, he was looking towards May 22nd, 1962, and said, There's going to be a little boy born. And he's going to be born in sin. And his mom and daddy are going to name him Raymond. And he's going to be born in sin and and shaped in iniquity. And I need to spill my blood because his life is going to be valuable to me. Just put your name and your birthday right there. It works for you too. So Peter says, you were ransomed. Look at this. You were. We're ransomed, meaning that through Christ, we were set free from this bondage of sin. Ransom is what's paid when someone is kidnapped, when someone is restrained against their will. Someone is taken away from one place to another. Sin took us out of this relationship with God in the garden and put us in this death trap. And what does Jesus do? He says, I'll pay the bill. Whatever they'll, I'll pay it. Praise God. And the beauty of that is, he didn't look for those folks that had it all together. Although he was willing to pay for them too, think about it like a supermarket. If Jesus was shopping in that supermarket, you know how you go in these nice new stores and all the canned goods are faced out and everything. And I used to work in that environment. You have to turn the canned goods and face them out and make it look nice and neat. So you look down the side, nothing's out of place and all that kind of stuff. Jesus wouldn't have been in that aisle. Jesus would have been over at that little dump bin. All the ones that's that's beat up and dented and, and messed up, they don't really sell that kind of stuff anymore. But all that little, little on sale special kind of beat up stuff, Jesus would have been looking, give me all of them. I want the ones that's beat up. I want the ones that life has whooped. I want the ones that had trouble. I want the ones that need a God on this. I want them. Jesus would say, give those to me. I'll pay their price. So our ransom, now here's the thing. You were ransom. Our ransom was not paid with something that was perishable. Watch this now. Our ransom We tend to think of silver and gold as things that would never fade. I look at some of us, we got, you know, gold wedding rings and silver and platinum and all this stuff. And it will never fade, always be here. But Peter says, silver and gold did not have the qualities necessary to pay the ransom. Not silver and gold. They will also, those things will lose their luster. If they didn't, you wouldn't be polishing your gold, huh? Come on here, somebody. Got to get me some jewelry cleaner. <laughs> Let them rings soak overnight. I want everybody to know I'm blinking in church in the morning. Got <laughs> My bling on, you know. And so and so they they're going to lose their luster. Now watch this. In verse nineteen, the next thing is Peter reveals the cost of our redemption. He says it was the precious. Oh, I love that. The precious, everybody say precious. The precious blood, not just the blood of Christ, but the precious blood of Christ, which adds value to that blood. It's not just any old blood. See, my blood is just blood, but his blood is precious. My blood can bleed, and it won't mean a thing to anybody, but his blood is so precious that it reaches to the highest mountain. His blood is so precious that it flows to the lowest valley. His blood is so precious that it gives me strength from day to day. His blood is so precious that it'll never lose its power. That's how precious his blood is. Watch this now. And so, and so he says this precious blood of Jesus is what accomplished my salvation, accomplished our redemption. Now, look, now we get the second thing is we get a demonstration of our redemption in verse 20. It says he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. But was made manifest, underline that in your Bible. But was made manifest, which means he came so we could see him. He was there, foreknown, before the foundation, before God ever said, Let there be, Christ was there. Before God ever said, Let there be light. Let the earth be, be formed. Before God said any of those things, Christ is there. But Peter says he doesn't stay in that state. He became manifest, which means we are able to see him in the last times for the sake of you. He left glory. Where angels were singing His praises all day long, twenty-four hours a day, seven days a week, and He came here, where He came hardly get His church to stay awake on Sunday. I know everybody got sleepy. Just woke up right then, didn't you? <laughs> what? What? Yeah, I'm up. I ain't trying to start nothing. I'm just saying, I'm just. But think of that. Though Christ is eternal, he entered into time and space for our sake. Eternity is his domain. But time and space, he came for us. We are limited. By time and space. He is not. He was not limited by time or space. But he came into time and space and cloaked his divinity in human flesh that we might be redeemed. When you already God, you really don't have to do nothing but keep being God. He didn't have to do this. He didn't have to come here and put up with all the mess of this world. He didn't have to come here and restrain himself. When they were, when they were marching him around, whipping him and beating him and falsely accusing him, and he could have just by thinking eliminated them. Imagine you on the cross and you God, you already know that somebody getting ready to stick a spear in your side. Now you might get me, but if I know you're trying to get me, <laughs> <laughs> I'm blocking that thing. <laughs> That's gonna hurt. Jesus knew the exact moment, the exact time, the exact person who would take that. He knew the angle which it was going to go in. And yet he kept hanging there. Think about that. He became manifest. See, humanity needed a visual. We are visual people. We are. If we weren't visual, Patty wouldn't ask Don how she looked. "How I'm looking today, baby, you you looking good?" So all husbands say, "That's right, if you don't, <laughs> let me help you out." <laughs> We're visual people. We dress to visual appeal. We, we take care of ourselves to visual appeal because we need a visual. And so here God says, I'm going to redeem you and provide you with a visual at the same time because you're a visual people. And so humanity needs this visual demonstration of salvation for all times. So he comes into human history. So that people like Josephus, the historian, could write that there is a historical Jesus. He is not the figment of somebody's imagination. He was really born in Bethlehem, laid in a manger, wrapped in swaddling clothes. He was real in human history. And so we needed that vision. Finally, my brothers, I close with this. We have the third thing here is the results of our redemption. Look at verse 21. And verse 21 really starts with that last word in verse 20 where it says you. He says you who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. We're called to this reverent living because, and here's why, because we have been given this relationship, this results of our redemption. This redemption paid by the blood of Christ has visible and manifested results for believers. The first thing is, Through him, we now have the status of believers in God. Before you became a believer, your status was different. You were an enemy of God. You were rejecting God. You might not even thought about God. You thought you were still in God's camp. But before you received Christ as your savior, you were God's enemy. Your status was non-believer. When you became a believer, your status changed. And it's through him, through that precious blood of Christ, that our status has changed. Can any be a believer in God without Christ there? People tell you all the time, I believe in God. I believe in God. What are they talking about? They're talking about this intellectual agreement that God exists. Well, the devil knows God exists. He used to live with him. (laughs) <laughs> Satan knows God exists. Demons in hell know God exists. They used, to, they used to hang out with him. They could tell us more about his existence than anybody else. They know he is real. So don't think because you have an intellectual agreement that somehow because I say, oh yes, there is a God. That's not belief. Not in the context of what the gospel's saying. See, the believing in existence is different than trusting for redemption. That's the difference. You can believe in existence versus trusting for redemption. You, you know, God, the gospel calls us to trust him for redemption. Now, the other thing is, through him, we have faith and a hope. Look at that. So that your faith and hope are in God. The implication here is clear. Before Christ, we were a people without faith and without hope. And I'm talking about real.